You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. First, I'm still sick. Perhaps I'm sick with something different, but perhaps it's the same thing lingering. It's hard to know. But I will someday recover, and then you'll be in for for the real, the real full-forced Plenary Session. But right now, you get you get a half dose. So this week on Plenary Session, we have two things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about association of patient characteristics and tumor genomics with clinical outcomes among patients with non-small cell lung cancer using a clinical genomic database. This is by Gaurav Singhal and colleagues and appeared in JAMA. Next, we're going to talk about the long-awaited Saber Comet, the randomized phase two trial that should not lead anyone to change their standard of care right now and should lead to a randomized phase three study. That Saber Comet, it's finally out in the Lancet, and we get to put those headlines that appeared just a few months ago to the test. You won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. First up on Plenary Session... Association of Patient Characteristics in Tumor Genomics with Clinical Outcomes Among Patients with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Using a Clinical Genomic Database. This is by Singhal and colleagues and appears in JAMA. So, what do you need to know? Well, this is the holy grail. This is the real-world data from Flatiron paired with Foundation Medicine genomic results to ask what happens in usual care among patients with non-small cell lung cancer who are treated. There are several interesting things to point out here. Let me, let me pick them up. First, I want to jump right into the methods. Approval for this study was obtained from the New England Institutional Review Board prior to study conduct, and the requirement for participant informed consent was waived. De-identification of patient data was performed according to Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act guidelines and confirmed by an external statistical review process. So what I want to point out here is that while many people are going to make a great deal of money from actual patient data, one of the groups of people who don't seem to be compensated for this are the patients themselves who don't even need to consent in order for this work to be done. I think it's up to others to decide whether or not that is fair or just, but knowing that billions of dollars are going to be produced from such data, one wonders what obligation or payment uh, the people who generate that data deserve for that use. Um, and I think it's worth contrasting that this is actually very different than drugs or devices where patients are consented for being on protocol. This is data derived from the from patients being treated in the real world. Nonetheless, that data is being used for commercial purposes. Okay, there are several um, sort of takeaway messages in this data set. One of the themes that gets discussed a lot is the role of tumor mutational burden. And that's going to come out of this data set. And I'm just going to say right off the bat that, you know, 
I don't think this tells us anything about tumor mutational burden. I looked and looked and looked for the sort of the right way to look at this question. I couldn't find it. But basically, what the authors here show is that TMB is prognostic. If you have a high TMB, you have a better OS than if you have a low TMB. If you have a high TMB, you have a longer duration of treatment with a PD-1 antibody. You had a higher response rate. Though, if you had a low TMB, you still have some response rate from PD-1. So, for instance, if your TMB is low, you had about a 27% response rate. If your TMB is high, it looks like a 43% response rate. So, the question is, is TMB a useful predictive marker, not prognostic. So it may be a useful prognostic marker, but the key question is, is it predictive? What do I mean by that? A prognostic marker tells you that a group of patients is going to do better or worse than another group of patients, irrespective of the treatment. And a predictive marker tells you that a group of patients will benefit from some treatment, but the group without that characteristic won't benefit from such treatment. So what we want in immuno-oncology are predictive markers. We want to know in whom we ought to deploy the therapy. And what we might need, but don't really need a whole lot, are prognostic markers that tell us how well people do if they're treated with IO drugs. That's useful to some degree, but it doesn't really help the clinical question of whether or not you should give a treatment to a patient. That's really sort of the holy grail. I guess what I'd say here is if you have a 27% response rate with a low TMB, and a 40-some percentage response rate with a high TMB, no one's going to look at that biomarker and say we should or should not give PD-1 therapy based on that, because even at low levels of the biomarker, that is a response rate that oncologists would look at favorably, particularly in comparison with other response rates of different agents throughout all of solid tumors. So that's one point here. The second point is, of course, I looked and looked and looked, and I still can't find it. Maybe I'm just missing it. I want to know if your TMB is high, and you get a PD-1 at some point in therapy versus not getting a PD-1, what are the overall survival curves? And if your TMB is low and you get a PD-1 versus not getting a PD-1, what are the survival curves? So I really want four survival curves plotted here. And I don't see that in any plot. So yeah, TMB might have some prognostic implications, but you know that's not really the interesting question. The question is, can you use it to decide in whom therapy should be deployed? And I don't see any evidence here that pushes that conversation. So this whole TMB thing, I'm just going to move past. I don't think this really advances the TMB discussion that much. What I think is most interesting about this paper is what it tells us in figure three, which is outcomes of patients who have an NCCN actionable genomic mutation and receive a targeted therapy versus those who have the actionable mutation who did not receive a targeted therapy. And the same is true for EGFR. They provide that separately, though they don't provide it separately for some of the other ones you might want to see it in, such as ALK and ROS1. So what are the NCCN targetable genomic mutations? Those are EGFR, ALK, ROS1, MET, BRAF, RET, and ERB2. Okay, so those are the targetable mutations that are considered by the NCCN. I think one thing of note here is that not everyone gets targetable mutations sent. Some people get them sent uh, later than other people. Uh, some people don't get them sent at all. And among the people who get them sent, some people get the targeted drug at some point in their therapy. Now, if that's EGFR or ALK, uh, that's generally the first drug they get. Um, but some people don't get it at first. They get it second. And some people don't get it at all. And then the authors provide the overall survival curves. So I guess I should say, um, you always want to take one thing with a grain of salt in an observational data set. That's this. 
if you look at a survival curve and the thing that separates the two groups is something that occurs after time zero, like whether or not a group was tested for mutations, found a mutation, and received a targeted drug for that mutation. That can happen at any point past time zero. It could happen you know, before you start therapy, but it could also happen one month in or two months in. You gotta be really, really careful when you look at these analyses because one of the things that could bias you, one of the things that could drive a difference in a group of people who did not get that drug versus a group that did is the so-called guarantee time. That some time is guaranteed by having lived long enough to undergo the testing, having lived long enough to find a mutation, having lived long enough to actually get the drug. Those are all types of guarantee time. Now, one way you can try to get around that is you could provide landmark analyses. The other way you could try to get around that is to incorporate therapy exposure as a time-varying covariate in your analysis, and that's what these authors do here. But even though they do do that, I think it's worth noting that that might not fully adjust for so-called immortal time. Okay, that's one. The second thing that could drive a difference is patients who are found to have driver mutations and don't get targeted therapy, um, they may be really, really sick or they may have a very aggressive tumor uh, that makes the doctor reluctant to start targeted therapy, uh, makes the doctor maybe more likely to try uh, a platinum-based therapy first. So they may be sicker. And the third possibility is um, the people who did not get it, uh, they may um, have a doctor who is not practicing medical care in line with prevailing standards. I think that's another possibility that that doctor is uh, somehow deficient in, in, in the care that's being provided. Okay. Um, and then the fourth difference, of course, between these two groups is that one group is actually getting the drug, so there's some benefit from the drug. The reason I say all this is that I want to highlight that the difference you see in the curves of all the patients who receive NCCN therapy versus those who do not receive it but happen to have those mutations, that difference is accounted for by a few things. One, that the group who's getting the therapy may be getting better medical care. Their doctors may be aware of these drugs and more likely to prescribe these drugs. Two, there may be some residual guarantee time the authors have not fully adjusted for. And three, there may be the actual benefit of the drug. So those three things are accounting for the difference. And what I want to point out here in this paper is this paper is telling you what the upper bound is of the therapeutic benefit, that the difference for all NCCN actionable lesions is seven months, so 11.4 to 18.6 for EGFR is 13 months to 21 months, a difference of 7.8 months, so it's about seven to eight months. So what do I think the real interesting finding is here is that the targeted drugs we use in non-small cell lung cancer, although we often extol their virtues, and one of their virtues is often a high response rate, which means a large proportion of patients have tumor shrinkage. Another one of their virtues is many providers have the anecdotal experience of having a fraction of patients who have just done really, really well with one drug and have been on that drug for many, many years. Both of these things, I think, are true. What this paper is showing I think rather provocatively, is what is the upper bound on overall survival benefit that these agents are, are offering? And I think what it says is that the upper bound is something like seven to eight months when you're talking about a survival around a year. You're living about seven or eight months longer because the difference in the survival curves is both a product of those drugs as well as probably some of these artifactual things, some residual guarantee time and some differences in the care being provided or in the patient population being looked at. That There's a group that might be sicker, and that's why they're not getting any of these drugs. 
So I think the takeaway message here is actually kind of a sobering takeaway message. We know with the drug like imatinib, which is a genomically targeted drug, that there are a few things about imatinib that are, that are quite unique. One, in its phase one trial in CPCML, it had a 97% complete response rate by the metrics of response at that time. Other targeted drugs, although they often have a good response rate, they don't get to that 97% CR rate. In fact, we haven't really seen that. Some of these targeted drugs in non-small cell lung cancer have a really high response rate, but the complete response rate, uh, that might be a little bit lower. Response, of course, is a measure of drugs' activity, and it's a surrogate for drugs' efficacy, for whether or not they make you better off. And I know there are a lot of forces in cancer medicine that seek to conflate the two, but it's important to keep them separate, that measures of efficacy, of benefit, have to do with how long you live and how well you live. And I think most providers and most patients will agree that these drugs generally have a side effect profile that's more favorable than chemotherapy. Nonetheless, they do have side effects, and, and those aren't you know negligible or trivial. Sometimes those can be um, quite challenging and require switching to other agents. But I think what this paper shows you is that in the real world, the cumulative benefit of using these drugs is something on the order of seven or eight months out of a year. Now, that's a good benefit in terms of, I think it would meet both the ASCO and ESMO meaningful benefit standards. I think many of us in oncology would welcome if every new drug had that kind of magnitude of benefit, we would be quite grateful for having those new drugs. But I think it's also sobering to point out that we're not really talking about changing survival from 11 months to 72 months or 54 months, as is shown in some carefully curated case series, as well as in some carefully selected uncontrolled studies or randomized controlled trials with heavy selection bias. In the real world, we're talking about moving from 11 months to something like 19 months, 20 months, something like that. We're talking about a seven to eight month improvement in median overall survival, which is a step forward, which is important, which is good, uh, but it isn't transformational. And it's not like what we've seen with CML, where you're talking about a 97% CR rate translating into a life expectancy changing from a median life expectancy of three to five years, changing to a median life expectancy of about 21 to 22 years. And I'm quoting some data from Sweden that appeared in the JCO. So I think the most provocative part about this paper is that it actually puts an upper bound, I would say, on the real world survival benefit from targeted drugs in lung cancer which have long been heralded as one of the exemplars of how targeted drugs can revolutionize cancer. Now, I want to put this paper in context with something else, which is that it is clear, since the stars aligned in the early 2000s and we had that transformational success with imatinib, we had the first draft of the Human Genome Project, we had widespread enthusiasm for, for kinase inhibition broadly, for targeted therapy broadly. We've seen a tremendous effort to identify oncogenes throughout cancer and to drug them. And a few years ago, John Markhart, Emerson Chen, and I in GEM Oncology published a paper called Estimation of the Percent of U.S. Patients with Cancer Who Benefit from Genome-Driven Oncology. We included, of course, all of these targeted drugs that were FDA-approved at the time in non-small cell lung cancer. But of course, we went beyond that. We looked at any genome-targeted drug in any single tumor type. And the first question we asked was, if you look broadly across every person who is likely to die of advanced or metastatic cancer in the United States, what percent of patients have a tumor type and a uh, gene mutation for which there is an FDA-approved therapy? And we found it was about 8.3%. 
So that is, I think, far lower than what I think many people would have thought. We found that 92% of people just are not eligible. They have a tumor type in which there is no genome therapy, or um, there's a tumor type where there is a genome therapy, but they don't have that genomic mutation because they happen to be in the group without it. Of that 8.3%, we asked, you know, how many people with cancer actually would not have a response to therapy? And we found that it was about 4.9% of, of all cancer patients who had advanced from metastatic disease. One of the most sobering findings of our paper was in the appendix where we actually plot this out year by year. And we ask, what is the growth in the percentage of cancer patients who may be eligible for genome-driven medicine over time? And it was about a steady half a percent per year linear growth over the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years. What's the takeaway message here? Well, I think one thing is, although we are tremendously enthusiastic about genome-driven targeted therapy, um, it's good to remember the old quote by Alexander Pope that hope springs eternal. Uh, hope truly does spring eternal, but there are a couple of true limitations of this class of agents. One, I think in 2019, we just cannot ignore the fact that the majority of patients uh, do not have an FDA-approved therapy for a genomic mutation. The majority of patients will not be treated genomically or based on genomic data. Two, if you are treated with genomic drugs, there's a sizable percentage of patients who have the mutation who just don't respond to therapy. Uh, you know, maybe it's around 50% is what we find in our paper looking looking at the best published estimates, but in the real world it might be lower. The next thing I'd say is even drugs that have robust response rates may offer survival benefits on the order of magnitude of months. Uh, and I think that's what the Singal paper is showing you, that all of these EGFR drugs, all of the ALK drugs, all of the ROS1 drugs, while they may, may clearly have anecdotal stories of transformational outcomes. The average person with those mutations who are getting those drugs is living about seven or eight months longer than people with those mutations who aren't getting those drugs. If you look through the supplement, you'll also see that these mutations are also prognostic. The median survival of people who don't have EGFR mutations is about 10 months. People who don't have ALK mutations is 10 months. So if you have an ALK mutation or an EGFR mutation and you don't receive drugs for that mutation, you live longer than the average non-small cell lung cancer patient. I think you see that in the supplement. It just struck me that the authors are actually not presenting their data in a very intuitive way. They're showing you survival among patients who have EGFR mutations and receive an inhibitor and those who do not. And then they club those in with all NCCN-directed therapies, have a mutation receive the drug versus have a mutation and don't. Why are they not providing the survival curves mutation by mutation? So let's look at ALK, ROS1, let's look at BRAF, all separately. I suspect that, well, I can not just suspect, I can see very clearly that the number one driver of the received NCCN therapy survival curves is the EGFR. So it'll be much more interesting to be providing that data separately. I suspect that the reason they don't do that is that in some of those subgroups, it may go a different way than what people would hope it would, um, perhaps because of noise, uh, but perhaps because of something there. Uh, and they don't want to highlight any sort of inconsistent data that doesn't fit the story people like to tell. Well, that's my last thought on that. The other paper I think you should take a look at when you're thinking about this space is called Clinical Outcomes with Pemetrexid-Based Systemic Therapies in Ret Rearranged Lung Cancers by Alex Drillin and colleagues that appeared in the Annals of Oncology in 2016. 
This paper really nicely shows a couple things. What if you took these genomic subgroups in non-small cell lung cancer and you administered the same cytotoxic drug to all those subgroups? Um, what would you see? And indeed, you see RAS, of course, has a rapid progression, uh, and that's shown in, in, in Figure 1, Panel A. Uh, but RET and ROS1 have really prolonged progression-free survival. Uh, that, that actually looks really good. The ROS1 curve looks not that dissimilar from the crizotinib uncontrolled um, phase 2 registration study of, in ROS1 patients. What's the point here? Uh, so we're also seeing evidence that these molecular alterations, which typically occur or tend to occur preferentially in non-smokers and also tend to occur in patients who are younger with non-small cell lung cancer, um, not only are they predictive that those in whom certain therapies are deployed do better than those in whom those therapies aren't deployed. And if you don't have the mutation, then those th same therapies don't benefit patients. So that's the predictive part of it. Um, they also appear to be prognostic that these are subgroups of non-small cell lung cancer that do favorably um, no matter what. Why does this matter? Uh, I think what the paper by Singal shows you is that you know one could look at the survival of patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer who get targeted therapy and compare that to all comers lung cancer, and you'll see a certain difference. That difference will actually look slightly bigger than if you compare them to people with EGFR-activating mutations who don't get targeted therapy because it's a bit of a prognostic thing. So again, so if you want to sort of try to, I think, honestly appraise what is the cumulative benefit of these targeted drugs, I, I think it does provide some clue that you shouldn't compare mutation-positive patients who get a targeted drug against all comers. You should compare them against mutation-positive patients who don't get a targeted drug. And in this case, when you do that second comparison, you get about seven or eight months not all of those seven or eight months can be attributed to the drug. At least some of that has to be attributed to the differences in patient characteristics that make somebody unlikely to get one of these drugs, the differences in provider characteristics that make those providers unlikely to prescribe these drugs, potentially some unresolved guarantee time or immortal time, and then finally the therapeutic benefit. Putting it all together, I think what we have to acknowledge is the reality that although we will almost surely find some well-validated exquisite driver mutations that are important in oncogenesis for which drugging those mutations confers great benefit. This is likely to be the exception and not the rule. Many other mutations we find drugging will provide some benefit, but that benefit will be modest. It might be less than what people wish it were. I think this is very important to know. Um, information like this can aid national programs in different nations who are facing coverage choices that seem very dire. Um, it's easy to get sucked into the rhetoric uh, that, that these drugs are wonderful and transformational. I think what this paper will show you is that these drugs, while they offer some benefit, offer a modest benefit. Um, and I think that's the real takeaway message. The TMB stuff, I think, is underdeveloped. Uh, they would really do, do good to replace the figure four panel B with four curves, showing you survival with TMB high or low with or without PD-1, so sort of four curves. And again, to treat exposure to PD-1 drugs as a time-dependent covariate, which is also kind of a challenging thing to do technically, um, but it's worth doing. It will, it will try to minimize some of that guarantee time. But I think that would be very instructive to ask this question about TMB. Certainly, by basis of response rates reported here, there's nobody who's going to be using TMB to exclude someone from these drugs if you're going to get a 20-plus percentage point response rate. That's particularly the case in oncology when we're approving new FDA drugs uh, on the basis of response rate that's just above single digits. Uh, th that's often the basis to approve a drug. So to say no to a drug for 20% response rate, that's sort of unthinkable.
This paper was paired with an interesting editorial about the importance of real-world data. I think what it will show you is that I, th I think it, it doesn't show you that real-world data, I think, is unfortunately going to ever supplant the need to do controlled studies. I think it's not going to do that. It's actually a highly inefficient way to answer clinical questions. That's something I keep saying that people keep ignoring, but it's actually a very, very inefficient way. Clinical trials are an efficient way to answer clinical questions. There are a number of questions raised by this data set. There are a lot of people online who just don't believe that the percentage of people with EGFR alterations not getting drugs is so high. They're really critical of that. I don't disbelieve that. I think these authors, for whatever the strengths and weaknesses of this paper are, I think they are quite diligent in their data collection. Um, I think they are accurately documenting that fact. That's not something I really question about this data set in particular, especially knowing the simple fact that Roche acquired Flatiron for $2 billion. That's a smart company. That's not going to do that without really vetting the data to make sure they're not getting uh, uh, massive uh, missing data. Uh, and I think they wouldn't have acquired it for such a high price tag if that were the case. That's why I'm not really too critical of that. Okay. Uh, those are my thoughts about this paper. I actually think it's uh, sobering. Uh, it tells us that, um, that these drugs are not quite transformational and that there's a lot of work yet to be done. And I think that's the message that, of course, um, uh, many of the so-called uh, Twitter cheerleaders might not want uh, to talk about too much, but that they probably should if they really wanted to make substantive progress uh, for patients with this disease. And I, I think the last thought is we should put the single paper in context with the paper by Carolyn Presley and colleagues that appeared in JAMA just a few months ago that showed that practices that expanded the use of NGS in non-small cell lung cancer beyond EGFR and ALK testing uh, did not see a commensurate improvement in clinical outcomes in a propensity score match data set. I think the results of the Singal paper and the results of the Carolyn Presley paper are likely entirely consistent and compatible with each other. And again, we would be able to see that if the authors were able to provide outcomes, not just for EGFR inhibitor receipt status or any NCC-directed therapy, but category by category for ALK, for ROS1, for BRAF, for ERB2, uh, for RET. If they were to provide that category by category, I think the two papers would likely coincide quite nicely. So those are my thoughts on the single paper. Now let's turn to David Palma and colleagues, Saber Comet, a randomized phase two trial. Now this is a randomized phase two trial that tests whether or not radiation to a limited number of metastases, the so-called oligometastatic state, could improve overall survival over standard of care therapy where you just treat the underlying metastatic cancer, usually with systemic therapies. Now, um, this was a two-to-one randomized control trial, which is something I don't like for a randomized phase two trial design um, because it's inefficient. It usually increases sample size by about 18% uh, to have the same power. Um, but that's fine if the authors want to do that. And it is a technically positive randomized control trial. Overall survival had a stratified log rank of P equals 0.09, which is above the pre-specified cutoff of 0.2, which is quite a permissive alpha, but that's acceptable, I think, in a small phase two trial to decide whether or not to go on to phase three testing. So I think that's fine. Um, so I think, strictly speaking, it was positive, i.e. it should be tested in phase three testing. It wasn't positive in the sense that this should lead anyone to change their practice today, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. The other thing I'd note is, if you look at the survival curve, I think 
you should have a little bit of humility uh, to see that the curves largely overlap until the median is reached. And then it's really one, two, three, four events in the control arm that drive almost all of the separation um, from the control to the, the stereotactic radiation group. Uh, so it is a very fragile study. Uh, you flip maybe even one or two events and this whole thing would fail to meet the permissive threshold that the authors have pre-specified. So it it really is kind of just positive, uh, warranting the phase three. Now, my real problems with this study, of course, come from headlines that read, SBRT doubles five-year survival in oligometastatic cancers. Uh, that is an actual headline that appeared in MedPage today. Uh, highly irresponsible to be talking about the five-year survival when uh, there's actually one person at risk for five-year events in the intervention group and zero people at risk in the control arm. Uh, there is no one, there's two people at risk in the control arm and seven at risk at four years. Uh, there is nobody at risk out that far out on the curve. Um, when you run one of these studies, you can't talk about tails when the trial was not designed, powered, or suited to comment about tails. The only tales you're talking about are fairy tales. It's tales that you've imagined because this is not a study where one can look at the tale and draw a firm conclusions. So, no, I would not say it doubles five-year survival. The next thing I want to add is that this is, um, uh, this is not a benign intervention. This is toxic. Uh, toxicity was far greater uh, in the group of patients who received radiotherapy. Uh, more grade two events. Uh, there was a 5% treatment-related mortality from this intervention. So this is not a benign intervention. This is a toxic intervention. And thus I find some of the quotes of the PI to be a bit problematic. Um, stereotactic radiation therapy needs to be delivered carefully by an experienced team and there's a small risk of serious side effects as well as mortality. But overall for patients whose cancers have spread and who are not expected to survive otherwise, the quote, the overall survival benefit of Sabre appears to outweigh these risks, said Dr. Palma. Uh, that's incorrect. Uh, the overall survival benefit of Sabre met the pre-specified plan and thus warrants a phase three trial, but this study is incapable of saying whether or not it outweighs those risks. It is not designed or suited to make that statement. And here, uh, I really have to say this is quite wrong. Ultimately, the question of whether an oncologist will offer this treatment as a standard of care for oligomonocytic patients will be up to that oncologist. He said, at the very least, physicians should be considering this as a treatment option for their patients. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, they should only consider it as a treatment option when the phase three trial reports positive results. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, what my prediction will be. Um, no one should use this to change practice in, in 2019. Now, some people have pointed out online that uh, the FDA has an accelerated approval pathway. They often take things like this for accelerated approval. Um, that is typically reserved for situations where there are no treatment options, where there's truly unmet need. Uh, that is not the case for this group of patients who, in whom there are potentially systemic therapies that, that can be attempted that are based on robust randomized data. Okay, so what's my prediction for phase three? Um, I hate to to say it, but um, you know, looking at these data, looking at how fragile that overall survival curve is, how it really hinges on, I think, four events that occur after the median is reached, how tight the curves line up on each other for the first part of the of the of the Kaplan-Meier plot, uh, looking at the toxicity profile of this of this therapy. Um, I would say that my prediction is um, a phase three trial absolutely should be performed, and there's some that are ongoing. Uh, it's it's going to be negative. I, I hate to say it. Um, it it's 
probably going to be negative for overall survival uh, with some serious toxicity that comes from the group that undergoes radiotherapy. And I think um, uh, what this paper is really telling you is that if there was no difference between stereotactic radiation therapy and not doing it, there's about a 10% chance you would see a result like this or more extreme in terms of overall survival. Uh, and in fact, I think that this is that 10%. So this is likely that were this to be ineffective, by chance alone, you would see this difference. And I think that's probably what we're seeing. So we'll see. We'll see what the phase three shows. But um, I think if I were to guess, I would say it's it's likely to be negative. Uh, so this trial was positive, i.e., it was sufficient to warrant a phase three, but this trial was not positive, i.e., should not lead to change in practice, uh, and uh, sh- and the standard of care should remain uh, not to perform this therapy. And I think phase three trials will will resolve this question one way or the other. Uh, and if I were a betting man, I, I would bet that this would likely be a negative study. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.